so many people are in that place of yearning to feel more deeply that when you give them the invitation and the opportunity, they jump right in. People are so hungry to feel, particularly in a world where we have this acculturated dumbness, that when you give them the invitation and you create a space where you can hold that in a way that feels safe and loved and held, people are eager to reveal the fullness of themselves. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I have always been a crier. Even now, just asking me to tell you about my kids, my wife, or even just those in my life who I'm grateful for can often bring me to tears. And this was the case even when I was a child. As a young Catholic schoolboy, I can recall a time in particular where I was trying so hard not to cry, attending a mass on a day after my parents had had a big fight. I remember just being overwhelmed with emotion, tears streaming down my face. I tried so hard to hold it back. And in the moment, I caught the eye of a classmate who gave me this sort of like knowing nod that I still remember today very clearly that really made me feel supported and seen, cared for. I really felt connected to them. I've seen this connection through tears in a professional setting too. It can be quite powerful. I recall times where I've facilitated teams and the teams were really uptight and guarded and then for some reason, someone breaks through, releases their emotions, cries, and the whole room opens up. In the professional realms, crying and emotional openness have been potent tools in my experiences, transcending barriers and fostering profound connections and empathy within teams. So today, with great pleasure, we welcome author and award-winning writer, Benjamin Perry, to the podcast to explore the transformative power of tears. Jerry and Benjamin, drawing from personal experiences, explore the impact of emotional numbness, the transformative power of shedding tears, and the profound connection that it fosters between individuals. From discussions on the suppression of emotions in society to the role of vulnerability in creating welcoming spaces, this episode will challenge you to reconsider how you navigate your own emotional landscape. Enjoy. Are you an ADHD leader seeking more understanding about ADHD and how it may show up in your working relationships? Or are you a neurotypical leader who works closely with ADHD colleagues? Do you want to better understand how to improve your working relationship with neurodivergent colleagues? ADHD is widely misunderstood, but by understanding the science behind ADHD, we can learn about emotional regulation, motivation, inhibition, and executive functioning psychological concepts that every leader can benefit from understanding. This October, Team Reboot is excited to bring you two ADHD-specific workshops. Our first workshop, Connecting ADHD Science to Resilience, is for leaders with ADHD who want to be more self-aware and attuned to the way that ADHD shows up for them and their working relationships. Learn how to advocate for your needs, celebrate your differences, and design a personal approach to managing your ADHD while propelling your career. Our second offering, The Neurodiverse Advantage, is for neurotypical leaders who want to learn more about the science of ADHD and want to build a culture that welcomes the strength of neurodiversity. 
Learn how your organization can accommodate neurodivergent populations in ways that benefit everyone. Spaces for these workshops are limited. Visit reboot.io slash workshops to learn more and register today. Well, hello, Ben. It's good to see you. Um, before we get started, why don't we just take a moment and uh, introduce and identify yourself however feels right to you. Sure. Hi, Jerry. It's so good to be here. Uh, I'll introduce myself for the first time as Benjamin Perry because that's the name that's on the book. And so if people are looking for it, you gotta got to use the full one. But otherwise, yeah, I'm Ben Perry. Uh, I use he and they pronouns uh, in my professional life. I'm a minister at a cool little lefty church in the East Village that's full of art and beauty and life called Middle Church. And I live in Maine in a little commune with uh, my best friend since I was three and my partner uh, and his partner and my brother. And we just planted 50 apple trees this spring and we are trying to do something weird and different up here. Uh, but I'm also the author of Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, which is a book that uh, explores the physiology of weeping, weeping in literature, all to ask, you know, if crying is this deeply integral part of our humanity, why don't we do it more? And then the middle chunk explores all of the social forces that keep people from crying openly. And the last third imagines if we could get rid of all of that, what would a world shaped by that kind of open weeping look like? Well, it, first of all, with regard to your little commune in Maine, I will say I envy it. And uh, you may have a visitor um, <laughs> coming soon, <laughs> but more than that, I, uh, thank you for that, uh, really robust introduction. Um, I will say that you and I became friends, if I can use that term over Twitter, which, well, what are, what are we calling it now? X. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, it's one of the delightful experiences. And, and I was excited when you began talking about the book cry baby when it came out and yeah. uh, I'll, I'll show you i have the signed copy that came via the strand um because i was uh really looking forward to it and i was not disappointed uh in the book it's really a very quite moving book and thanks so much i was excited to have this conversation with you um i think that uh, it's a topic we don't talk about enough, and I think that you've done a wonderful job with the book, and I just want to say that really at the start of this. I, I, I wanted to just start off by asking a question that's implicit in your subtitle, which is, why do tears matter? Um, so yeah, why, why do tears matter? I'm going to start that answer personally, because mm. that's part of where my book started. And it is sort of the bedrock for my broader understanding and framing of the question. Uh, so I write about in the book how I cried a lot as a young child, but then by the time I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old, I stopped crying altogether. And then I didn't cry for a decade between the time mm. my early adolescence to when I was going to seminary in my early 20s. I can't remember a single time 
when I cried at all, not even in private. And when I think about that decade of my life, I remember such a pervasive numbness, this feeling of, particularly in retrospect and in hindsight, of feeling dead. Uh, in the book, mm-hmm. I write about how I would sort of watch my emotions you know, flicker on the wall and convince myself that they were real. Because I could, you know, I wasn't, I would say, oh, I'm happy or I'm sad or, you know, <laughs> I could name it. Like if you had a little color chart, like you present for children, like <laughs> point to the happy face. Like I, you know, was aware of emotions, but I did not feel them in any kind of real way. And any of the emotions that I felt were nearer to this, you know, baseline of numbness than they were to any kind of ecstasy or heightened sensation or real feeling of being alive. And then in my early twenties, I had a professor in seminary who asked us to think about the last time we cried. And I realized that I could not remember. And it sent me on this existential journey where I set about to reclaim that part of myself that I had lost. And so I started this bizarre spiritual experiment where I made myself cry every day. Uh, I did that Mm. for months. And what I found at the end of it was that I just completely rewired my emotional life. And all of a sudden I I felt alive again. Mm. Um, You know, sometimes in my professional life, I'll talk about things like resurrection. And that's a, you know, religiously loaded and and oftentimes weird and abstract term. But mm. when I think about that period of my life, when I learned how to feel again, it's the one of the only words that really feels right. I just think back to this time when I just felt so palpably dead and I was masking, covering, and uncomfortable with my sexuality and uncomfortable with my gender and not willing to face all of these things that I had repressed inside myself. And then I in gentleness and tenderness invited my invited me to to start unearthing all of that that I had buried and that process it made me a whole person again and so when i think mm. you know now more broadly you know going beyond my own personal experience i see that same numbness reflected in so many ways in the world mm we move through such incredible suffering every day. Mm. And yet we also live in this punishing isolation and silence. I, I have this distinct feeling and I know it's true because I do pastoral care and I talk to people in ways that, mm. you know, people aren't always uh, vulnerable and willing to reveal to you know people they might work with. But I hear how many people are grappling with loneliness and isolation and despair. And yet we have this toxic positivity that gilds our collective life so that Mm -hmm. so many of us are increasingly carrying all this anguish, but unwilling to name it. And I think crying can help to break that box open. Yeah. I, you know, thank you for sharing all of that. As an author myself, I want to give you a gift back, which is to hear your own words read back to you. This is really from chapter one. Life begins with tears. And while few would desire sobbing with infant-like frequency, daily weeping is far nearer to our natural state. You know, I, I, I had to stop and put the book aside after those two sentences. 
I felt a resonance. Um, I'll share a little bit. Several years ago, Wired Magazine did a story on me and the work I do with founders. And the headline on the story was, this man makes founders cry. And it became something of a joke, um, a, 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 a kind joke, not teasing, yeah. but a kind joke. And I would go to events and people would say, well, how quickly is Jerry going to make you cry? <laughs> right. Um, and I often named the front row in a talk I would do the splash zone. So you have to be careful. right? <laughs> but, but the truth behind that, I would often say, I, I don't set out to make people cry. I set out to help them feel. Yeah. And it's the feeling that often manifests itself in the tears. And the tears, yeah. to my mind, evoke something uh, one of my Buddhist teachers would speak about, which he called the genuine heart of sadness. Mm. And I love what you've done, both in the, the initial answer to my question, but even in those short little sentences, where you are connecting the process of being in touch with one's emotions, i.e. manifesting in tears. And by the way, it can manifest in laughter. Yeah. But the process of that with life itself and the opposite of that being a kind of numbness to life itself. And I thought that that was extraordinary. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you could say more about that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's interesting. People have asked me as I've been going around and talking about the book, do you want people to cry more? And I'm always like, eh, I mean, sure. But <laughs> what I actually really want is for people to feel deeply. That the crying actually is in some ways not, it's an indicator. It's a, it's a thing that happens as a result of deep feeling. Um, and so often when people stop crying, that is a sign of so much other emotional, emotional repression that's already happened. Like sometimes crying is like the last thing to go. And so right. when we're talking about, oh, do I want people to cry more? That will happen if you feel more deeply. If you are a person who who truly and earnestly opens yourself to the world with vulnerability, like you're just going to cry. That's how we're wired as people. It's part of our biology. But it's that piece of opening oneself that I think is really, really crucial and the and a key part of truly being alive in the fullest sense of the word. And when I think about you know you talking about your experience with founders. What's interesting to me about that story is how many people are walking around mm. needing to open up like that. Mm. Not to, you know, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> cast any aspersions on your 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 uh, skills, your ability to open up a room, but like part of the reason why you're able to be effective in doing that is because so many people are in that place of yearning so deeply to feel more deeply that when you give them the invitation and the opportunity, 
they jump right in. That's been one of the fascinating things about having written this book is I tell people about it. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing all of these stories about when they've cried or when they didn't mm. cry or how they want to mm. cry more. People are so hungry to feel, particularly in a world where we have this acculturated dumbness, that when you give them the invitation and you create a space where you can hold that in a way that feels safe and loved and held, people are eager to reveal the fullness of themselves. And I think, you know, offering that invitation is a key. Yeah, I think I think you just hit upon something that's really powerful, which is that the the release that you might provoke, that I might provoke, the release first in ourselves, but the release that we may provoke in the other is an indication not only of the closely held, closely guarded feelings, but also that deeper yearning for connection, that deeper yes. yearning for, for to, to be together. I, I am often struck by the etymological basis of the word compassion, the notion of mm. being with someone else's feelings, being with the feelings, our own feelings, yep. is, is this, uh, this, this extraordinary experience of it. And I have a suspicion I want to take you back to. There's this moment that you describe uh, in which you started to have the insight and uh, that you had not been crying. And you, you talked mm -hmm. before about the professor. And yeah. it, if I remember correctly from the book, it was in a class on lamentations. Was that correct? Yeah, it was an Old Testament course, and we were talking about the book of lamentations. Okay. Take us there for a moment. Tell me about the importance of lamentations, and, and I'll be a student uh, with regard to this, and then connect it back into the tears. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up the uh, etymology of compassion, because mm. uh, if we're doing etymology is one of the things that's really interesting to me is that the etymology of religion comes from the Latin religare, to bind, mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. to bind ourselves to one another. Mm. And what we know from, I'm going to be a bad, uh, a bad student and <laughs> do the crying <laughs> bit first. I'm going to loop it back into lamentations, I promise. Um, but what we know from the research about crying is that that's actually one of the core functions of emotional tears is mm -hmm. that they solicit help from other people, that we are hardwired to respond when we see other people crying. It engenders mm -hmm. compassion in ourselves. It makes us feel more uh, predisposed to offer help. We feel more tender towards the person that we see crying. And you know, evolutionarily, this was this developed mechanism to build uh, relationships outside of our immediate kin. That's one of the things that humans are that is so remarkable about humans is the way that we form all of these beautiful relationships outside of the circle of people who share our genetic material, who would have no as you're doing genetic, in Maine. yeah, who have no genetic you know reason mm -hmm. to want mm -hmm. you know for your genes to 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 continue to live, and yet there's something hardwired in us that wills other people's flourishing. And crying is this invitation to be in that kind of relationship, to bind ourselves together, to feel someone else's emotions. 
and so the book of lamentations for um those who uh don't know is written right after the babylonian army destroys uh jerusalem and raises the temple to the ground and casts uh, the jewish people into exile and it's this moment of incredible trauma incredible pain and written by a people who were not sure that they would ever see their home again so it opens with the, the words how empty lies the city that was once so full of people you can feel the the aching and the yearning in those words seeing streets that once were full of life now being empty and yet you know what what does the elsewhere the psalmist says my my tears have been my food day and night in that moment of utter desolation crying becomes that reminder that we are actually still together that we are actually still linked to one another even in those moments when we are cast outside of what is comfortable or what is familiar um, and i know that personally too because i the church that i serve actually burned to the ground uh in 2020 um, right after COVID had cast us all into our own little homes. Uh, that winter, a fire spread from the building next door and destroyed our sanctuary. Uh, and it was this moment of just adding trauma layered on trauma, uh, particularly for a community where there's so many queer folks who you know come to Middle because they've been cast out of other religious communities and they're looking for belonging, looking for a place to call home and have finally found it or finally home and to lose that home in a fire at a time where you were already isolated from your neighbors was this almost unendurable pain. And yet, in the middle of that grief, there was weeping. There was collective mourning. There were people giving each other hugs. Mm. And three years later, our community is still alive and vibrant and has grown by hundreds of members because we were able to cry together, because our tears were that reminder that we are still alive even though the building is gone. And so when I think about a book like Lamentations, I see a people grappling with unimaginable trauma that they should never have to endure. Mm. And still affirming in one another's arms, I am here and I still feel something. I'm still alive. It's a powerful story. And I mourn for the loss of the physical building and I am happy that the heart of the congregation is still there, is still thriving. Um, and that speaks to uh, what you and all members of the congregation have created together. There's a community that is born out of the suffering. Yeah. You know, in Buddhism, there's a story that the, the Buddha tells of a woman who has lost her child coming to the Buddha to be consoled. Mm -hmm. And he asks her to visit uh, every house in the village and to take from each house a mustard seed mm -hmm. from every house that has not experienced loss. And she comes back empty-handed. And the point of the story is not to diminish her experience of loss, but to see the universality of that loss 
and to realize that there's a binding together that comes from the experience of acknowledging suffering, mm-hmm. of being compassionate with suffering, of allowing, if you will, the tears, of allowing, yeah. if you will, the lamentations, so that we can come together and, and build that which is essential, which is the heart of the community. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you uh, come from sort of the business world Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting shift that i'm starting to see in companies and corporations too that i think for a very long time the rules of doing business was to not acknowledge suffering right in the in the lives of, of workers that you you put that in a bag at the door and you came and you did your job and then you you know went home and you picked it up on your way out the door and you know you went back to your life, but that, you know, within the walls of the workplace, at least, you know, this is a place where you, you know, left the, the problems outside. And obviously that was, you know, always a, a fallacy to some degree, you know, people don't just, you mm-hmm. know, aren't actually able to compartmentalize like that really. But what, the other thing that I think has been really fascinating is that people are realizing that that's actually not how people do their best work either. Mm-hmm. That all of mm-hmm. us are more productive. We work better as a team. We feel affirmed and part of a project better when we actually bring all of ourselves into a space. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think particularly it's been fascinating watching, you know, millennials, uh, we got a lot of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, t- we took a lot of crap for like, oh, they're not going to play by the corporate rules or whatever. But actually, like, by and large, we kind of did. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we were like, you know, people would like make fun of millennials for like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, they're just all so feeling and they like, but by and large, I actually mostly saw members of my generation sort of filing in and, and largely obeying the sort of corporate rules that were had, were established before we entered the workplace. But it's been fascinating to watch Gen Z enter the workplace because they are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, an emotional authenticity to this rising generation of folks who are coming into workplaces and being like, no, actually, nope, that's not, that's not going to work for me. Um, And demanding something different either by, you know, refusing to play along or by just leaving and, and, you know, moving with their presence. And I think what people are starting to realize is that if they want to attract top talent, if they want to create the kinds of spaces that actually nurture uh, incredible work, we are going to have to live differently because people are done with putting themselves in a box by the door when they walk into into work in the morning. I I agree completely. And I'll I'll tell two stories, one from a not too distant past and one just from last week. The first, uh, several years ago, um, after an appearance on CNN, in which I, in conversation with the reporter, the reporter started to cry and Mm -hmm. she bravely left that in the report. Um, Mm. um, after that experience, I got a phone call from the head of HR at a very, very large software firm who asked me to come speak to the senior leadership team, uh, about some of the notions of how we handle mental stress, distress within an organization. And I said to her, um, and this is a very well-regarded company. I said, well, why are you asking me? to come in. Do you guys seem to have it figured out? And she told me a statistic. I don't remember the exact number, but she said that 
healthcare claims for depression and anxiety, and this is important, for the children of the executives in the company had gone up 30, 40, 50% in the previous couple of years. And this is pre-pandemic. Yeah. Now, now, the reason that that comes to mind is when we live in an environment, when we are socialized to lock down those emotions, it is not just the individuals who pay that price, but it is all those around them. And those children who were filing for healthcare claims for depression and anxiety, those are the Gen Zers who are coming mm-hmm. in. So that's one story. The second story speaks so 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 what that story does and what we've been talking about I think speaks to a responsibility that those of us who have power and whether that power comes from us to us from role or from projected onto us by our identity by our place in a in a heteronormative binary leaning structure, whether that comes to us because of those experiences or not, we have a responsibility to lift the burden, if you will, that our fellow uh, humans carries. Now, that brings up the second story, which is this notion of our responsibility we first met a few a few months ago. We had some dialogue back and forth, um, and in that time, we've had more mass shootings. Right? Yeah. We are speaking today on August 29th, and um, just this past weekend, we had uh, a white supremacist murder three black folks who are doing nothing more than going about their business shopping at a dollar general store after trying unsuccessfully to invade a historically black college campus. But this is also, what, a week, maybe 10 days after a 66-year-old woman, mother of nine, shop owner, was shot and killed for flying a pride flag outside of her own store. You know, we speak of lamentations. We speak of responding to suffering. There is suffering all around us. And, And I think that the training that many of us have gone through to not feel what we feel as human beings has this horrific effect of shutting us off to the suffering that we see around us. Because when we're numb to our own feelings, we tend to be numb to the pain and suffering around us. Does this resonate with you? Yeah, and it absolutely does. The, the relentlessness of the suffering is part of why numbness becomes an adaptive strategy because to feel the weight of that horror day after day after day is in a very literal sense unbearable but the other thing that i always want to talk about when i talk about 
the social forces that suppress crying and more broadly the social forces that instill that kind of numbness is that that is an intentional choice because that numbness the broad cultural popular like numbness in a population behooves people who want things to stay the same right the status quo yeah that you know gun manufacturers would very much like for you to not feel the weight of your anguish the next time there is a mass shooting which will be tomorrow right if you actually felt the full weight of what it means for there to have been 471 mass shootings so far this year if we actually sit with that even for a moment even for a second if we let the weight of that absolutely unconscionable tragedy touch our hearts in a real kind of way what we come away with is an absolute refusal to continue living this way and i think more and more people are getting to that place you see all kinds of grassroots organizing happening all over the country right now beautiful things happening in tennessee just to, to name one example of you know folks who perhaps at one point in their lives were uh, you know people who would you know defend the second amendment or whatever that that means or you know who were you know gun rights supporters who all of a sudden have realized that this is just absolute lunacy and we can't continue to live this way and we, it is it is literally killing us to do so i think more and more people are starting to have that moment of conversion where all of a sudden the suffering hits in a kind of way that you can't go back to the numbness it's um uh... You know, in the journeys that I have been on, uh, starting with writing Reunion, the book that's coming out in November, and just really opening myself up to the experience of folks not like me in the most profound ways, what I have come to see most directly is that we are allowing babies to be murdered. Yeah. And I speak in dramatic language because... I don't know any other way to allow the feeling to cut through. Yeah. Because it, as you point out, if we remain numb, then I don't know how things will change. I want to share a, a story. Um, and apologies in advance because I'm already crying a little bit and I'm probably going to cry more. So I'm not going to apologize. Exactly. That's the book. <laughs> I'm done apologizing. Um, but there was the the shooting at the the gay nightclub in Colorado. Uh, I right. say last Colorado summer. Springs. Yeah. Yeah. And that happened on a Saturday night mm. and... That Sunday, I was set to lead worship, and then I was meeting up with a bunch of queer friends uh, to hang out in Brooklyn together. And I read about the shooting on my way into church because I hadn't been on the news, and then I was supposed to lead the time with the children. Mm. And, you know, what do you Right. What do you say? And I just was not 
okay, and I was not in any kind of state of mind to be able to to lead or give a comprehensive message. And so I sat down with the kids and I cried. And I mm. said, listen, I want you to know that this morning I'm not all right. There's no part of me that's okay. A bunch of people went out last night because they wanted to dance. They wanted to experience beauty and ecstasy and the wonder of being alive. And they died because of who they are. And there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing that will make that okay. But it's all right. That's what it means to, to live earnestly and authentically. That some days there are going to be days where you wake up and you cry. And that's not a failure. It's not a weakness. It's the very best of who you can be. And after I had worship that morning, I went and I hung out with the friends who I was supposed, who I had planned to hang out with. And we had planned to go out dancing. And I we all got there and nobody was was really in a dancing mood. And so we were just hanging in my friend's apartment. And one of my friends said that this is this is what this is what they want. Mm -hmm. And so my friend put on, you know, dance music in their living room and we danced and we cried together. Mm -hmm. It was a, a weird mingling of joy being with one another and grief. Mm -hmm. But it was that affirmation that I found in somebody else's arms that that's the kind of thing that will lead us out, that will birth the world where these kinds of senseless tragedies don't happen. It's not going to come because we pretend that we're strong and that it doesn't shake us to the very core of our being. It's going to happen when we are courageous enough to be vulnerable and to weep mm. and to keep dancing, mm. to continue to be alive in defiance of all the forces that want us to say numb dead before we finally die. Mm. Thank you for all of that. You brought me back to that moment. You brought me back to, I don't remember the year, but I remember the date, December 14th, the Sandy Hook shootings. And I remember the date because it's my birthday. And I remember I was leaving my office in New York. I was headed home to Long Island. I was in my car and I'd left early. And was my habit, I turned on the radio and CNN. And I remember choking that because of tears. <sighs> were so strong. And I, I think my dear friend, Ben, one of the pastoral gifts implicit in your book is a pathway to how to be with unbelievable suffering. It is to allow ourselves to lament. Yeah. It is a lot to allow ourselves to feel what 
Yes, the forces of mendacity don't want us to feel, but to be fair to all of it, the forces that we have internalized, the internalized structures that yeah. say uh, that that even in a in a moment where where y- y- you might have been caught up into it, let me apologize to Jerry for crying, right? And we both chuckle at the the irony of that. the 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 fact is, um, you know, in a sense, I think that. In a world where we are constantly making others, where we are constantly, we have razor wire floating in the Rio Grande to prevent children from seeking sanctuary. Yeah. Right? In a world where, and and I'm not alleging that our immigration process isn't broken. Of course it's broken. But the answer is not more suffering. Yeah. Right? Um, and and I'm arguing, well, you know what it is, Ben? I'm tired of my own helplessness. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I that I just apologized for for crying because it's a it's a sign of how deeply ingrained these patterns are not because i'm like some superhero or something but just i mean i have literally spent the last three years working on a book about tears about why they're crucial about and why they matter my own yeah my own you know really yes. digging into my own journey of of no longer being a person who apologizes for crying um, and I, you know, really have changed the way that I move through the world. I cry all the time now, and I, I don't apologize for it. And yet here I am, uh, just reflexively apologizing because that's how deeply ingrained these things are. Um, but it, one of the things that I I think about when we're when we're asking how do we deliver that different world where we don't wake up just tired to our bones, mm. dreading the next shoe dropping. Hmm. It's interesting that you brought up Sandy Hook because I remember likewise being distraught and then turning on the television and watching President Obama. Right. And what did he do? He could have delivered a fiery speech about gun violence. Hmm. It would have been right. He could have, you know, castigated the NRA and, and said that you have these children's blood on your hands, he would have been, again, absolutely accurate. But he didn't do that. He stood at the podium and he cried. Right. And the courage right. to enter that moment and do the thing which is the only natural and proper response when you were gazing upon slaughtered children and it was really it was fascinating to watch in the ensuing days all of the the people in the right-wing ecosphere making fun of him for crying and people using like 
memes about James Vanderbeek on Dawson's Creek or you know, calling him a woman or all the other things that people said. And the only thing that that did was expose the inhumanity of a system that could gaze upon such tragedy without feeling. And I think when more of us take that moral responsibility seriously and begin to lead authentically through our own tears, but more broadly, authentically through our own emotions. We invite a better world, and we are part of being the midwives that bring it into being. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it, it, it was, there are a lot of things on policy that I might have disagreed with, but that moment of leadership from Obama has stayed with me forever. And, mm -hmm. you know, yes, this is by, by some rights, a podcast about entrepreneurship. It's certainly a podcast about leadership. It's certainly the work that I do. And part of what I think we're both saying is that uh, there is a deeper, there is a call, there is a need for, for an unapologetic embrace of the fullness of our human experience as a, and I will assert, as part and parcel of what we might define as leadership, in order to use whatever privilege and power my body carries mm -hmm. to affect the world in a way that I know is the right moral world. I can get into an argument about the Second Amendment. I can get into an argument about free speech. I can do all that intellectualized. But there is no moral world in which fourth graders coming into school for one of their last days before summer vacation in Uvalde, Texas, should be shot. Yeah. There is no moral world. There is no world where the number one cause of death for trans youth is suicide. And the number one cause of death in children, period, is gun violence. The number one cause of death in children, period, is gun violence. And, and there is a linkage between our racism, our anti-immigrant nativism, and all of the things that we're talking about here, our transphobia, our, our homophobia, our, our patriarchy, there is a linkage between all of this where the result ends up being the same. Children are being murdered. People shopping in a supermarket are being murdered. People going to a nightclub murdered for who and how they love. A shopkeeper demonstrating her alliance murdered. Well, and thank you for bringing up uh, trans suicide in a conversation about children being murdered because we don't often talk about it that way, but that's what it is when people are intentionally creating a world where kids by dint of who they are don't feel like the world has space for them we may not be pulling a trigger 
but we are accomplices in a murder. Yeah. Because we're not making it safe for human beings to be human beings. And I think that those of us who have power have a moral and ethical responsibility to push against that world. And I think when we think, when we talk about how does change happen, mm. it's also really crucial to remember that by and large, people aren't changed by intellectual debate. Mm-hmm. And, and that anti-intellectual mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. I know what you mean. Learn, learning is great. But actually, anybody who studies how and why people change their beliefs, none of them come away with the understanding that, oh, by and large, people are changed because you presented them a different, some more data. You gave them a graph and they went, oh my God, that graph, because <laughs> the, the way that human brains work, if the data affirms our preconceptions, we go, oh yes, you know, that, that, right. that, that, right. that supports what I believe is true. And if it doesn't, we come up with all sorts of reasons why that, that graph is actually bad data, whether it's, you know, uh, fake news or you know any of the other things that people sort of will, will say as a reason to not integrate this new information into uh, their lives because it violates a previously held worldview. What actually changes people is feeling. Yes, people change when they feel something. And so that's one of the reasons why I believe storytelling is so incredibly powerful. I was just part of a, a beautiful project here in Maine where we. Uh, had queer folks from all over the state. Uh, a good friend of mine is a beautiful portrait photographer and he volunteered his time and he took uh, lovely portrait shots of them. And then we got another community member who was a framer to frame them. And everyone wrote their own little uh, reflections and we put them up in a local coffee shop housed the exhibit. And then we really weren't sure who was going to show up, but all of a sudden, you know, the opening night came and there were like 200 people in the room. Mm-hmm. All of these, this whole community coming together to listen to these stories that are too often not told. And then mm-hmm. at the very least are not often told in people's own voices. Mm-hmm. We're very used to talking about queer people culturally, mm-hmm. but very rarely are queer people given, particularly just everyday queer folks, not leaders or i mean leaders in their own lives but you know not you know people who who are frequently given megaphones but just hearing from everyday folks about the way that they live and love and are trying to make a life in the world and it's the response has been gorgeous we've had invitations from all over the state to bring the exhibit around we're going to go do some exhibits in you know more rural areas that are, uh, are grappling with homophobia and are trying to, to change and understand uh, you know people who they may hear things about but don't personally know. I think that kind of storytelling opens an opportunity for people to see the world differently than if I you know just open up my book of statistics and I talk about you know the rate of trans suicide. That actually doesn't really change people's hearts and minds as much as seeing a beautiful picture of a trans person and hearing in their own voice the way that they're just trying to live a good moral life, a good life full of joy and tenderness the same way that everybody else is. When you have that feeling, it invites a different kind of change. And I think crying is tied 
all up in there. That if we can get people to the point where they are crying about people they do not know, they are going to feel connected to them in a way that transcends that individual experience. And all of a sudden, they are now vested in their survival and their thriving in a way that they were not before. I, I think that's beautifully said, beautifully said and well connected. Um, you know, I, I agree with you that the transformation that we seek, in a sense, is rooted in our hearts, not in our minds. And it's opening that heart, allowing the heart to be broken open so that you can experience that other. John A. Powell, the legal scholar and founder of the Center for Othering and Belonging, talks about our hyper-individualistic nature in our society. And, you know, in a sense, tears or why tears matter is because it is a pathway to break through that hyper-individualism that says you're there and I'm here and your life doesn't matter as much as my life matters to me. And yet every single wisdom tradition that we have developed as a species has said, no, you matter to me and I matter to you. And together, we actually matter together. Well, and one of the things that tears do is expose that lie, that lie mm -hmm. that we are all you know, living isolated and alone, that we're, our success is not connected to our neighbors, that our thriving is not interlinked. When we cry, it is this visceral, somatic affirmation of our interconnectedness. I, particularly the way that you know empathic tears function, the way that mm -hmm. if I see you crying, Jerry, I, my own heart begins to, mm -hmm. to feel tender. Uh, and we know that even for people who have been acculturated to the point where they, they see tears as a kind of weakness, if there's a big, open, ostentatious bout of weeping, like people still respond, even if it is only to denigrate or to, like there is right. there is some kind of feeling that gets dredged up because that's just who we are as humans. When somebody else is crying, our mm. own spirit is disquieted. We see that mm. you know really clearly in, in little kids. I mean, anybody who's worked with you know toddlers mm. knows that if you have a whole group of toddlers and one of them starts wailing, it's only a matter of time <laughs> until the rest of them do because they have not had that instinctive response to somebody else's suffering, you know, uh, acculturated out of them. Uh, I think that when we can feel that for ourselves, when we cultivate that, that vulnerability and tenderness, that bringing tears nearer to the surface, and we start all of a sudden feeling vicariously through other people in all these different kinds of ways, we see all of the interconnections that are, of course, always there. And it highlights just the brittleness of this masquerade that we are all individual autonomous units out for our own survival. I, I, th I think that that's a brilliant point. And what I realize is that in some ways, the tears represents the opposite of that brittleness. It creates a flexibility. It creates mm -hmm. a feeling sense of resilience 
to withstand the suffering that is all around us. Ben, I, I want to thank you both for, for coming on the show and for writing Cry Baby. Um, I, I have a, a prejudice when it comes to books, and that is that I much prefer books where the author shows up and is themselves in the book. Mm -hmm. um, it's the way I like stories. And yeah. uh, from, from the opening to the closing of this book, my friend Ben is there. And that means a lot to me. Uh, I know that from my own process, it can be hard to put yourself out there. So I just want you to know that uh, it's really appreciated. And I think it's an important book. And thank you so much for coming on the show to talk it through with me and helping me see things that I did not always see before. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Jerry. It's been an absolute delight and a tender wonder to get to have mm -hmm. this conversation with you. Can I leave folks with the, the little benediction at the end of my book? Oh, that would be wonderful. This is a... I, I write the whole book, and I, for the by and large, it's a it's a secular book, the end of a secular mm -hmm. audience. But uh, you know, professional habits die hard. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I got to the end of the book, I I wanted to leave people with a blessing for crying. Uh, so this is that. If you've lost your tears, may you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption, and worthy a full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry, and a salve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, may they water new growth, and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief and hold the places we are broken repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry, but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash signup so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Are you feeling stuck in your work or life and longing for a shift? Maybe you're undergoing a personal or professional transition, or perhaps you're looking for ways to be a more potent leader, colleague, and human being. As a coaching company, 
We work closely with individuals, teams, and whole organizations to develop self-awareness and relational skills, as well as frameworks they need to be more effective leaders in life and in their career. Whether you're venture-backed or bootstrapped, a founder or a VC, CEO or solopreneur, small business owner or manager, our team of experienced coaches are here to support you in your leadership journey of self-discovery and unlocking your unique leadership style so that you can meet life and work challenges with grace and ease. Become who you were born to be. If you're ready to take your life and leadership to the next level, contact our engagement team for a complimentary consultation. Learn more at reboot.io slash coaching.